listeners, you are tuned in to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Chloe Foster and joining me today is Greg Balderson, fungi enthusiast and general plant nerd. And we have a newbie on the panel with us this morning. Tex Moon, welcome. Tex is the ranger team leader at the Dandenong Rangers Botanic Gardens. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you feeling, Tex? No nerves or anything? No, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> Bit early. Good, good gardener's hour. <laughs> yes, it is the only hour that, uh, that gardeners should be up. Yeah. Um, now, tell us about your role at the Dandenong Rangers Botanic Garden. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm the team leader up there. So, we, Parks Victoria manages um, a number of gardens up in the Dandenong Rangers. So, um, the one I work out of is the Dandenong Rangers Botanic Garden, formerly the National Rhododendron Garden in Olinda, so, um, but yeah, we manage Alfred Nicholas Memorial Garden, Perianda Garden, George Tyndale Memorial Garden, the RJ Hamer Arboretum, Mount Dandenong Arboretum, and William Ricketts Sanctuary, so. How many staff work for Parks Vic looking after those gardens? Uh, we have about, I think it's the equivalent of 11 full-time staff across the gardens, yep. so, and then and team leaders and, and some commercial um, staff as well, so, so working in gift shops. Do the staff jump between the different? Because you're you're mainly at the Dandenong Ranges bot but garden, aren't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. We do we do share staff around. Yeah, and and there's some that are sort of based more at one than the other. But but yeah, we all sort of manage across the estate. So mm. yeah. yeah, not a bad place to work. It's a great great place to work, and it's sort of coming into its own at the moment with yeah. all the autumn colour and and everything. So it's yeah, beautiful yeah. spot. Well, the Alfred Nicholas Gardens always look beautiful at this time of year when the ginkgos start turning and dropping their leaves yep. down the lake. Yep. So that's nice. Any other highlights? Yeah, look, oh, I mean, it's it's everywhere at the moment. I'm the, the Botanic Garden just uh, and Perianda, George Tindall, they just take on a whole new dimension at this time of year with the across the landscape with the different sort of yeah. autumn foliage and then you sort of get some late flowering perennials coming through as well. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's what, a special time. What have time. the autumn colours been like up there? Pretty good, year? yeah. And I, I will, the caveat is that, that I uh, I have just had the last two weeks off work, so I, I haven't, <laughs> haven't seen it fresh, but um, but I'll be back there tomorrow. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, good year for autumn colour. Yeah, you think after the, a good growing season, everything would be... Uh, but it, uh, up at Mount Macedon, it's the the autumn colour on a lot of the trees hasn't really happened yet. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of trees that have filled up with their sugars and yeah. just dropping their leaves because it isn't cold enough for them to really yeah, right. up. So they're sort of just going, oh, we've got nothing else to do. We'll just drop our leaves now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, but, no. but there's still a lot to go. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah there's, there hasn't been a lot of excitement. Uh, yeah. For for some of the trees up there this year, just because we haven't had any cold weather up until the last day or so. Yeah, and of course, but we've also had some pretty, pretty heavy storms sort of action Stri- going on the trees as well, stripping as well. the trees yeah. as well. So that that can have an influence. But yeah, no, generally pretty good. I think um, you know we got this the cherry avenue that people go crazy for for <laughs> in the spring, which is you know for the cherry blossoms. But it it really turns it on in, in autumn. It's a they're actually in autumn, autumn cherry, and you get this flame orange kind of avenue. So, and then, and then the subsequent kind of carpet of of uh, orange underneath as well, which is yeah. pretty special. So, yeah. at the bot garden, at the bot there. garden, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, just you know, there's the beach, so Vegas, yeah, great Acer Japonicas of they're the early ones that that really do well. Um, I bought oh. one of those in actually. I've got um, uh, Aconitifolium. 
is yep. one of the plants. So yeah, <laughs> nice. so that's that's at uh, Romsey uh, where I live, um, and that's just cut, coloured up recently. Is the um, I, I wanted to get a vitifolium too, but I realised the canopy's now about 20 feet above my head, so I can't actually reach any of the lower branches <laughs> that have coloured as of yet. But that's an even more intense colour than the aconite folium, which is a really deep sort of strong red. Yep. Yeah, with bits of flame yellow through occasionally. Real burgundy on yeah. that. Yeah. And the beautiful dissected leaves as well. So they're, they're, um, the japonicas are really, really pretty maples. And yeah. The, and the palmatums are usually the ones everyone goes for, but the japonicums are just stunning. Mm. Yeah. And they tend to have a really great structure as well from, yeah. the, from the, the branch point of view. You know, like, I mean, we've, got, we've actually got one in our house, a full moon maple that... The kids just love it. They love climbing it. Yeah, yep. and it's just it's just that beautiful sort of open vase kind of shaped. Yeah, you know, nice old tree. So yeah. Mm. Well, we you're listening to the Three CR Gardening Show. We'll get onto some a few community announcements. They're starting to trickle in. Um, if anyone does uh, have any community announcements for us to put on air, you can email it to us. Our email address is gardening at three cr dot org dot au. Uh, now, an announcement um, preserving the Cloud Hill Garden. So, Jeremy Francis, who is a regular um, panellist on the show here, uh, owns, I believe he started Cloud Hill maybe 30-odd years ago, 40-odd years ago. Um, the Diggers Foundation um, are, what are they, putting it, they're putting it into the Diggers Foundation to preserve it. Um, in perpetuity, so with the other Heronswood and, and um, Sinearth, Garden yeah, yeah. of Sinearth. Uh, so thank you to Pam for letting us know that once. Um, yeah, so Cloud Hill will will be forevermore, which is good. Um, we also have a two. We have two tickets for the Bollebeck Open Garden in Macedon next weekend. So I'll give out our phone number in a minute, but Bollebeck is um, a heritage property at Macedon and it is open through Open Gardens Victoria Scheme on the 24th and 25th of April next weekend. We have two tickets available uh, for listeners if they want to call up and grab them can call up and speak to Emma and Susie. So our number for that is 94190155. So 94190155. And if you want to talk to us on air, any questions you have, give us a call on that number and we would love to chat to you. Something else that we've been using this year is the 3CR text line. So that number is 0488 809 855. So if you want to send us a text message with a question or a comment or just say hi, <laughs> uh, that number is 0488-809-855. So we will welcome your calls uh, to come in when you are ready or when everyone's awake. <laughs> it's a bit still a bit early at the moment. Um, we did have one a couple of text messages that we didn't get to last week. Um, problem with whitefly um, out of control on a tomato crop. The tomatoes are now gone. What do you suggest for whitefly control? This was Deborah. Oh, that's a good question. Whiteflies are hard to control. They are hard to control. Yeah. Um, 
maybe some companion planting. And that's yeah, that's a lot of it. Is that people talk about you know white flowering um, plants and things like that that they're supposedly territorial and I uh, yeah, it's a tough one. Because mm. um, whiteflies do can tend to come in in, in sort of plague proportion mm. when they do come in. So um, I would just sort of suggest biodiversity in your veggie patch. Companion plants. Predatory mites, uh, predatory wasps and things that would attack white fly? I would be, I'd, I'd say so, yeah. and I think the website to look at that for look look at for that would be Bugs for Bugs. Yeah. They do mm, sell commercially, um, domestic and commercial. Mm. So you'd be able to find a some sort of predatory bug, whether it's a wasp or whether it's uh, something else. But as you say, mite. creating that diversity in the first place rather yeah. than having a monoculture is often right. the yeah. best way to deal with those things so yeah. if the problem rises it's a much smaller one yeah. yeah and you said white flowers before so alyssums might be really good to put in yeah. the veggie garden they're nice and little even some calendulas exactly. yeah. And, yeah and as you said i think it, it's all about diversity i think that's the the best way to approach any of these these problems you're not going to go and you know broad spectrum pesticide anything you know in your veggie patch so i, I really think yeah mm. planting up with different things that that attract Different insects, different bugs, yeah. always, always worthwhile. Yeah. All right, a couple other questions that we didn't get to last week as well. Um, a Kerry from Port Melbourne is looking for the Lady Boothby fuchsia. It's pretty hard to find. Um, Kerry, I would probably speak to Stephen Ryan at Dixonia Rare Plants, give him a call and see if he can uh, get hold of that or if he knows where to get hold of it. Or the Yarra Valley Plant Fair is on this weekend. It might be worth a trip out to um, Quail Road in Wandon. So the Yarra Valley Plant Fair was was on yesterday and it's on again today as well. Stephen Ryan is emceeing the event. There's probably going to be a few 3CR listeners, maybe a few 3CR um, announcers or panellists. I know Virginia Haywood will be up there. So you might be able to speak to some of the um, plant stalls about that particular fuchsia. Um, your minor rare plants is going to be up there as well, so they might be able to get hold it, does it to get hold of it for you. Have you guys ever heard of that fuchsia? No. Lady I don't, No, um, the other one would be Craig Wilson from Gentiana potentially. He's he's got a good collection of fuchsias there. So yep. Yeah. So Gentiana Nursery, and that's up in Alinda as well. Yep. Yep. Um, one last question: A strawberry guava laden with fruit can't get to the middle. Is there a way to prune it? Strawberry guava pruning, guys. No, Just cut the middle no. out of it. Okay, so cut it like a me with them. Yeah, cut it like a vase, and and let, open it up. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. usually the, the, Just the, open up the fruit middle. tree or fruit thing is to create as much sun on the plant as possible, and also easy access to when it's got fruit on it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah vase vase shapes usually works for that pretty well. Yes. All right, there are the questions. Done for now. <laughs> Greg, you were saying this morning that you got a fungi tour on this afternoon. Yeah, that, that it's actually, uh, this one sold out. It's for the Masson Rangers field gnats, which are a newly formed little group. So if uh, anyone listening up in the Masson Rangers way uh, wants to be in a field gnats group, it's, yeah, it's only just sort of been formed in the last 12 months or so. All right. Um, and they, you know, do tours and... and um, I'm, I'm, I've got my eye out for any geology tours that uh, they put on. Um, the local geology tours are, are, are uh, often very interesting. 
Um, and yeah, so I'm doing one for them this afternoon, uh, which is a fungi walk around Sanitarium Lake. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't rained for very well for the last sort of three or four weeks, and I did have a bit of a recon tour myself the other night, uh, and there's not much out, so hopefully the the cold, uh, damp nights, even without the rain, have brought a little bit of fungi on. So, um, uh, I mean, there's always something out there. Mm. Uh, but there, there's, I've got a few others coming up over the next few months as well. Um, one of the the easiest ways, if, if anyone's interested in going... Uh, they're usually around the Mount Macedon area, mm. um, although I think the next one's over in ba- over Ballarat Way. Um, but the best way is to check the uh, My Community website, which is the group I'm doing it through, um, which is myco.org.au, which is myco.org.au. Mm-hmm. Um, and the booking stuff's all through there. So, if uh, yeah. So uh, the next one's um, on... I think it's the 24th of this month over in Ballarat. So that's um, next Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> right, week. it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as I say, if you go to the myco.org.au website, all the booking details are on those ones. But, um, yeah, all summer I thought it's going to be the most amazing fungi season yeah. ever. And, and then it's dried it just up. sort of dried up at yeah. the end. And there's still some amazing stuff out. I, I went out with my daughter the other, the other day. We went for a, a bit of a walk. Um, I thought I'd show her the oldest tree that I know of on Mount Macedon because I don't think I've ever showed it before. It's this beautiful old mess, mate. Mm. And while we were standing there looking at this, it's basically just an arch with a branch sticking out of the top of it now. It's fallen to bits over the years, but it's still alive. Um, and, yeah, looking at the ground while we're standing underneath this tree, and it's like, oh, there's one, there's one. And we ended up spotting about five or six uh different unusual species of pretty much every colour except green. I think we found red, wow. yellow, blue. Wow. Uh, d- ten different shades of brown. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, the only the only fungi we colour we didn't see was green, <laughs> which, are, which are quite rare, actually. Yeah. There's, there's not many green ones. Um, so yeah, we are coming into about. mushroom season. We definitely should so, be in the midst of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people ask me about, you know, what mushrooms you can eat, and I just like yeah. stay away. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a fungi. It's probably expert. the best advice if you're yeah. going to listen you. to advice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of um, fungi foraging tours are um, increasing. Yeah. Is is that myco.org website? Yeah. Place so to go? so my community do uh, foraging workshops as well. Yeah. Um, Sort of all, o- th- all over Melbourne? I think so, uh, yeah. As I say, check, check their website. Yeah. Um, and any events that they're listing, they'll be, they should be up on the website if you keep an eye on it over time. And the other workshops I'd recommend are the Alison Pulio workshops. Um, I don't think I've ever listened to someone that's quite as good at sharing their passion in a really well un- uh, uh, understandable... She's a great educator. She, um I've been to about three of her, three or four of her workshops, and the first one I learned a heap about fungi. Yeah. And the other two or three I've learned a lot about how to tell people about fungi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, she's really really good at uh, yeah. communicating information um, without sort of talking down to anyone, or mm. um, she's she's just very good at it. Um, so, I, if you're planning on going out. To forage fungi, I don't do that. I, I'm mm. just photographing them, and yeah. I've got a 
ecological sort of interest rather than a food interest. Yeah. Uh, um, so if you are going to do that, I would definitely uh, uh, say to go and do a workshop of some kind. There's one of the best ways to learn about foraging mushrooms is off someone who forages mushrooms. Mm. So you're out, out in the field, you're looking at old caps and, and new ones and what they look like when they're young and what they look like when they've been eaten by grubs and what the ones, most importantly, what the ones that look like the ones you're picking mm. yeah. that you shouldn't pick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah pro- process of elimination yeah. isn't, the, isn't the best way to go. So, so yeah. yeah, the one of the most important things about it is, isn't learning which ones you're picking to eat. It's actually knowing the ones that you shouldn't be picking yeah. that look like the ones that you're yeah. trying to eat. So And there's some minor minor distinctions between them. And for me, I've just err on the side of caution every single time and yeah, go, yeah. I'll just buy the Swiss brand from the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. Well they're the they're the probably the one of the hardest ones are the are the field mushrooms. Mm. Um so uh, a woman I know's actually doing her PhD now in Agaricus xanthodermis, which is the yellow staining one that makes you, you sick gives you gastro yeah um and i don't think she'd be, feel comfortable picking filled mushrooms right. after her research <laughs> <laughs> um so so it's sort of with those ones it's it's i mean there's ways to to, to tell them apart yeah. and and tests you can do and things like that to make sure and once you know you've got a clump in your yard you can feel a little bit more confident that it's not going to make you feel like you want to die for a few days <laughs> yeah. um and obviously the most uh, dangerous ones are the, uh, uh, some of the cortinarius, which can shut your, your kidneys down, mm. I think, or liver. Um, and the Amanita phylloides, which is the death cat one, which literally deconstructs your DNA over a couple of days. And cool. once it's got in your system, <laughs> that's it. There's nothing anyone can do about it pretty <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, that's it. Um, yep. So, yeah, there, there's uh, cautions, probably the best thing. But oh, as yeah. I say, if, if you're planning on going out foraging your own mushrooms... Go and do a workshop with someone who knows what they're talking about. Uh, You can't just buy a book and and go out for a wander. No. You need to go out and, yeah, Yeah. and um, find out from someone. And and your advice is perfect too. If if Just no, don't. Yeah. That's the best, uh, that's the safest advice you can take from anyone is don't eat it. Don't eat it. Yeah, Yeah, you have to be really sure about it. And if you're in somewhere like Europe and there's a huge culture of, of foraging for mushrooms, um, over a long period of time, then, uh, you know, the advice you get from a local there is pretty easy to follow. It's well known. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, we lost uh, most of our Australian fungi knowledge. It was sort of, you mm. know, we, we didn't listen to the people who knew it. Um, and Common a lot theme of that, at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that knowledge uh, lost or, or ha- hasn't been researched at all. Yeah. Um, there is so much unknown about the fungi world, yeah. particularly with Australian. Yes, but yeah, and we've got stuff. such a big uh, uh, ecosystem for it too. Uh, you sort of look from far north Queensland all the way down to the southern tip of Tasmania and all the different habitats, and there's fungi in all of those that's been removed from most of the world mm. evolutionary-wise for a long yeah. time. So, so there's there's an amazing array of fungi in Australia that we don't know a lot about. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, don't uh, don't go out and just pick something and no. go. Oh, it should be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just stare at it in awe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, I'll give out our number again if anyone has any questions. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Our number is 94190155 if you have any questions or if you want to send us a text message. That number is 0488098555. We did have someone call in. Uh, she didn't want to go to air. Mem has a four-foot standard wisteria that got attacked by possums. About a quarter of the plant was destroyed. She pruned it back but would like advice about whether the hosts think it will survive and how best to nurse it back to health. Wisteria is a pretty vigorous... I was going to say, I've tried to cut a wisteria out and dug down a metre into the ground to do (laughs) it and it still comes back. It's probably done the work (laughs) for you. Yeah. Um, I I think you could give it a drink of... Uh, seaweed fertiliser or um, seaweed concentrate and then just keep an eye on it. It's mm. going into dormancy. Yeah, they'll be going dormant yeah. soon. And yeah. I found with wisterias, I'm not sure if it's uh, if it holds true with all of them or, or generally, but um, if you put nitrogen fertiliser in a wisteria, it won't flower for about five or ten years. <laughs> so so right. don't wow. put too much nitrogen yeah. fertiliser. Yeah. It'll grow... It'll grow amazingly well, um, even more so than they usually do. But yeah. um, I've found if they get a little bit too much nitrogen, they don't. Uh, so so keep the, just focus keep on the, the dynamic growth. lifter away from them. Yeah, I think they'll just they'll just grow. They won't uh, tend to flower so much. So maybe a, a fruit for a fruiting fertilizer that's something yeah, that's or higher sea, in seaweed. They, they don't really yeah. need fertilizer. Yeah. They're, they're no, they really don't. Just yeah. use the seaweed and yeah. um, maybe prune up any ugly bits while while the possum's already been at it. Yeah, and then. Um, yeah, by spring next year, uh, when it starts to shoot off, it'll be putting on three metre growth shoots again yeah. in no time. You probably won't even know that it got pruned yeah, yeah, by a possum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be just if the possums are taking a particular liking to it that you're going to have to control the possum. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Which is the hard, the hard thing. Yeah. But, but yeah, they, it should come back pretty, pretty well, I would imagine. Yeah. Hopefully the possum finds something else yeah. to eat. Yeah, well, if, if there's rarer things in the garden, the wisteria might be a good foil for them. Yeah. <laughs> them away from yeah the it depends side. what else is in the garden. Yeah. But a standard one's a bit trickier, though, because you want a certain shape to it. I yeah. mean, if you've got a wisteria up an arbour or something, mm. the, you probably wouldn't even know the possum was eating its fill off it every night. But, um, yeah, a, a standard one's a certain size and shape and mm. makes it a little bit tougher, I guess. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would. Hopefully it comes back soon. Um, Greg, you've brought in a pile of plants this morning. Tell us about one of them. All right. Um, well, the first one, I actually picked these last night. So they've been in the car and the studio is pretty warm as well. So they're a bit frizzled. <laughs> um, but uh, the first one's one of the uh, uh, coloured stem dogwoods. Um, this one, I imported the seeds from Canada. It, it actually comes from Europe uh, originally, like it's, uh, it's natural habitats in, in from Britain across to uh, Western Asia. Um, it's Cornus sanguineus. Sanguineus? Sanguinea. I think it's sanguinea, actually. Um, and so I imported the seed about 10 years ago from uh, a seed company in Canada. And I haven't seen it in Australia before. Um, so I, when I had my nursery, I tried to get it out, out there as much as I could. Mm. It's a little bit tricky from cutting, so it's it's like the coral. Uh, it's like the um, the red stem dogwood, uh, Albus siberica. Yep. Um, except the colours on this one aren't just red; it's also bright orange and yellow. Yeah, right. And the side that turns red is usually the, the northern side that faces the sun. Oh. 
they actually colour up a little bit more than they are at the moment. So once the leaves drop off them, they've, they've, uh, the common name's coral stemmed. So, and as I say, if you walk around the shrub while its leaves are off, on the northern side it's mostly red and the tips are sort of a fiery orange. And if you walk around to the southern side and look at it, it's mostly bright, really intense yellow. Mm. Um, and it's a really colourful winter, winter plant uh, once the leaves have dropped off. But the autumn colour is also really interesting too because uh, if, if it's in a slightly exposed spot, it, its main colour is yellow, a really nice soft uh, lemon yellow. Um, but it gets these sort of uh, re- burgundy red tints through it as well. So it's quite interesting autumn colour. Mm. And then once it dro- drops its leaves, it's got these beautiful coloured stems on them as well. Yeah, it's got a whole spectrum of colour on it at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's one that I think looks better if you coppice it every few years. So um, I usually... What would it get to if you didn't prune it? I, I, well, I haven't done that to mine. I've, I've always cut them down because I want the, the coral stems. Yeah. But if the red stem dogwood's anything to go by, you, you're looking at about three or four years and then it's just sort of a greeny brown. Okay. So it's only, it's only the last year or so's growth that, that stays the intense colours. Yeah, so you uh, do want to prune it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, help, it helps a bit. And also, again, if it's anything like the Elba Siberica, the, the shape of the bush, they're not really trees, they're sort of multi-stem shrubs mm. and they're not the prettiest of shapes they're sort of you know they're they sort of rangy and and leggy and yeah um and as i say if the and the they, colors, they get the, those typical dogwood flowers on them the cornice flowers? no no they're more like viburnum tinus flowers oh, okay. little, little umbels of um little tiny white flowers um the berries are quite nice They've got the uh, blackberries on them as afterwards so a lot of the the I'm not sure if the the split in the in the dogwood range. Stephen would be a good one to talk to about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you get the the floridas and the capitatas that have the big bracts around the the actual flowers. Yeah. Um, this and the red stem dogwood and a, a couple of the other ones have the little viburnum tinus like umbels of white flowers. Those ones have also got really interesting berries on it. Mm. So you, you think of the the big flowering dogwoods and the big strawberry like fruit yeah. that they get on them. These guys have got more like um, like viburnum uh, okay. berries in clusters, um, and as I say, this one's got beautiful little black ones. Uh, but the the colour over winter is amazing. So the plan is with these up at Forest Glade, I've, they take a while to grow from cuttings. They can soak for a couple of years before mm. they start taking off. Um, but I'm hoping to get a garden bed where I've got. Uh, some red stem dogwoods in these and some black stem willows sort of all planted together. So there's a bit of interest in winter when everything's sort of dropped its foliage yeah. off. Yeah. So um, when do you, being a deciduous plant, when do you prune it and when do you propagate it? So the the pruning part, I, obviously the, the main reason you're pruning it is to get colourful stems in winter. Yep. So you don't want to cut them in winter. Yeah. So I usually leave it until they're just starting to shoot in spring. Okay. Yep. Um. And you want to try and cut out the leggy stuff, anything, anything that's like small leggy branches, you cut right back to the main trunk. Yep. Any new water shoots that are nice and strong and healthy, you leave up to maybe a foot or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the old strong branches that are producing nice new shoots and things every year, you take them back down to maybe a node or two above what you took, down, took them down to the year before. Yep. Um, so it slowly gets a little bit bigger, but then some of the older branches aren't producing strong shoots anymore, so you might cut them back down a little bit further as yeah. well sometimes. 
Um, but yeah, gen- generally you want to keep it under a metre, maybe, under, maybe yeah. half a metre or something yeah. like that. That's a nice size for a shrub. Yeah. yeah. Well, and by the end of the season, um, so doing that to a red stem dogwood, you know, you, you can still end up with something that's, uh, you know, nearly two metres tall by the end of the season mm. if you're cutting it down to 50 centimetres. These guys don't grow quite as quickly, but you'll still end up with something, you know, that's about a metre and a half mm. after after one season. So, mm. um, yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's a good size to keep it to. Oh, sorry, my dog's having a bit of... <laughs> we do have a fourth guest in the studio yes, this morning. Yeah, Miss, Misty's come in, come in as well, and she's got her old dog cough that she has occasionally, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, it's still COVID safe in here, don't worry. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think she's uh, got that, hopefully. No. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the, the coppicing I do late winter, yep. so you get to enjoy it all, all winter long. And then, excuse my ignorance, and obviously maybe listeners don't know, when... When will it flower? So you, because you don't want to be pruning off the flowers and I fruit. Do. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the one off, thing. So you grow it, it, it for the stems. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And the leaves too, because you get better leaves on the coppiced water shoots. Yeah. But like on the regrowth water water shoots, you get much better stems. You can actually see on these ones that I've picked the little flower buds forming. So it flowers. You can see the little black. Ah, uh, uh, yes. In, in the leaf axils, you've got the flower buds forming. So if you wanted them to flower. The flowers aren't that amazing, as I say. They're just little clusters of white. Yeah, and they're pretty enough. But yep. as I say, if it's a choice between those and the healthy water shoots with the bigger leaves and the brighter stems, I think I'd choose the the leaves and the stems <laughs> over the flowers. Yeah. Um, but I usually leave one of them get to flowering, or maybe I I've, I grew about five or six from seed, so I've got a nice little genetic pool there. Yeah. yeah. So I often I'll often let one or two go to flower and and fruit just mm. in case I want to pick some seeds off them and, and grow and try them again. From, they seem to grow actually better from seed than they do from cuttings in yeah, a lot of ways, okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, and as far as the cuttings go, um, I the ones I've had success with I've taken about now, this time of the year, but mm. obviously you need a bit of a misting system of some sort. Um, and So will they, will they just sit in their propagation mix for a while? If it's the plant's going into dormancy... And you take the cuttings, which a lot of deciduous plants you sort of do around this time yeah, of year. Yeah. Do they do the cuttings just sit there for a little while? Yeah, they're pretty, while the plants in dormancy. Yeah, yeah, they're they're pretty good as far as that goes. As I say, as long as you keep the moisture up to them and the yeah. humidity up. Yeah. Um, I'm not really good at propagating. As I say, I haven't got heat beds or mm. or proper misting systems. Mm. One's just one one that I've bought from the local hardware store, <laughs> yeah. and it turns on for two minutes every two hours or something. Um. But uh, it seems to work, but I'm sure there would be a much better way to do it. So th- like a red stem dogwood, you can literally just cut a three-node cutting and stick it in a wet bit of ground and it'll grow. Yep. Um, these, the corner sanguinea is not quite that easy. Mm-hmm. It takes a little bit longer. And, and as I say, even once they've got roots on them, you're not going to have a vigorous plant within a couple of years. They, they seem to sulk. It's, it's almost if you, you, know, you put them up into an eight-inch pot once they've got roots on them and then leave them for three or four years until they've started to get a bit of health to them and then you can plant them out, mm. um, which is really frustrating because, as I say, I've got the, the, the black stem willows that I've grown for this planting up at Forest Glade are already nearly a metre tall. <laughs> <laughs> and the cuttings of this dogwood are still only about two inches tall. Yeah. They're yeah. just little tiny. Um, uh, they grew a little bit this year, but, uh, yeah, they're going to take a while to 
to get up to something that we can plant out and use in, in a garden bed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, I will give out our phone number again. It is 94190155, and we still have the two tickets for Bolobek Open Garden available. So we've all been locked up last year for way too long. It's high time to get out for a weekend up to the Maston Ranges, I think, and go and see Bolobek on either the 24th or 25th of April. Uh, we still have the two tickets available so if you want to give us a call and grab them, maybe people are just still waking up, 94190155 if you want to grab those um, Bolabek Open Garden tickets. It's beautiful in autumn too. There's some lovely big old autumn trees there. Every um, heritage garden, you know, or yeah. older gardens, yeah. Dandenong Ranges we were talking about before, are just stunning at this mm. time of year. So I, I think too, I'm not 100% sure, but I think there's a couple of uh, stalls at Bolabek as well. There's a couple of nursery stalls there. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. It would be worth checking out, though, because I'm pretty sure Post Office Farm were going to be there. I think I saw them advertise. Yep. Yeah, right. Um, I might have a, a look on the on the internet in a second while, <laughs> yeah. while there's a bit of a break <laughs> and, uh, and confirm that. But Get I'm pretty sure it. Post Office Farm were yeah. going to be there, yeah. Dex, question about the Botanic Gardens. So yep. what was one of the main reasons that they that it changed its name from the National Rhododendron Garden to the Daniel Ranges Botanic Garden? Yeah, good question. Um, obviously, the National Rhododendron Garden was a name that had served as well for many, many years. And, it, yeah. and, and, you know, that's what we're renowned for. We've got a great, incredible rhododendron collection. And yeah. the garden was started in the 60s by the Australian Rhododendron Society, who... Are still there and an incredible um, knowledge base and help within the garden today. Um, but I guess one of the big reasons for changing the name was, well, I guess, to reflect what is there. So it's not just a springtime rhododendron garden. Yeah. There's a great diversity of plants. We've got, you know, it's it's a huge collection all around. I mean, we've got a it's a hundred acre garden with with a heaps of different plants from natives to great conifer collection um obviously yeah lots of roadies lots of azaleas and being in a cool climate you know up in a bit of altitude it's you can grow some stuff that we won't can't grow down that's right that's right and and i think that's be you know that's becoming more and more um relevant obviously with global warming and and what's going on is that yeah things that you can't grow in the city or in other parts of Australia will actually grow up in the in the Dandenong Ranges and in the Macedon Ranges in these sort of cooler climate areas. So mm. Incredible growing conditions. We've got the you know volcanic soil and you know deep volcanic soil that just just grows everything. So yeah. so yeah, and look, and a big part of the name change is also really to promote that year round. Um, Appeal, yeah. As well, you know that we do have there. You know, we yes, it's, a, it's an incredible spring garden, um, but it's also an incredible autumn garden. It's an incredible winter garden. It's a great summer garden. You know, and and and, and if you can keep coming back and seeing the seasons, like any garden, you mm. know, the, the 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 seasons are, are what are what makes it. Yeah. So, so yeah. Particularly at the moment, cool climate gardens, you know, in Melbourne, the a lot of the older gardens that have exotic ornamentals in them. The trees are all going into deciduous mode at the moment yep. and the colours are just mm. Melbourne mm. in autumn. It's just beautiful. Yeah. So you'd be, I mean, the Daniel Ranges and the Macedon Ranges, I've got both yeah, main Melbourne Ranges in front of me today. <laughs> yeah. 
Well planned. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I really planned it like that. <laughs> it's, it, the Mount Massive at the moment, I'm sure it's the same up in the Dandenongs. The weekends are very hectic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so more so since lockdown. No, no, it's been up at Mount Macedon for all, for the. Like, I mean, it's it's always at this time of the year. It's always been reasonably busy on a on a weekend at peak sort of autumn season, um, but certainly the last you know five or ten years, it's it's mm. you can barely get up the main road a lot yeah. of the time. Um, they've had to shut off Honor Avenue in in Macedon, which has a, a row of pin oaks either side. Um, and because there were just so many people standing in the middle of the road trying to get that perfect photo yeah. and oh, really? car, cars nearly hitting them. <gasps> so they just shut yeah, off right. the whole road now and, oh, and no. you can walk up and down the middle of the road. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Um, which I'm sure the locals love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, yeah, Mount Macedon Main Road, you know. And, and the thing is, to, uh, there's a lot. Uh, there's certainly a lot of um, locals up there that, that hate it, and fair enough too. Um, but the thing... I think if you're lucky enough to live in one of those areas, the thing you need to realise is you get to live there. Yeah. And Melbourne's not getting smaller and people want somewhere to go mm. and they're beautiful places that, wow. that um, you know, they're not gated communities or anything. There's people want to come and see that stuff and that's yeah. their little slice that, you know, if you're living there, it's just this drone of cars constantly mm. every weekend for a month or so. Yeah. Yeah. But for the, the people that are coming there, that's maybe an hour or two that they get to spend somewhere beautiful and you get to live there. So yeah. uh, um, as, as annoying as it is living in <laughs> one of those areas, it, it's certainly, uh, um, you know, it, it's much better living there than having, yeah. having that one or two hours where you get to get out and have a yeah. look at something like that. Yeah. yeah, and it certainly is, you know, you see, see the same tension up in the Dandenongs, obviously. And, and I think it's also good to remember that you know, you've got a lot of businesses that have uh, have done it really tough over yeah. the last twelve months. Yeah. That, that that really rely on that sort of that mm. traffic coming up. And but the hot tip is, come up to the Dandenongs, come up to the Macedon Ranges, but but maybe try to do it on a weekday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that's what I was getting at. Is the, <laughs> yeah. the weekends are hectic. Yeah, but, yeah. but the uh, the weekdays are a little, a little bit quieter. It, it, certainly at Forest Glade, uh, working there during I, I work there on Wednesday and Thursday. And it's surprising how many people are through, but um, it's nothing compared to what it's like on the weekends. <laughs> uh, I, there was one of the days I was working there the other week was, I think it was a public holiday or th- there was a lot more people there than usual and, and the what they call the Japanese garden, I was blowing all the, the leaf litter off all the little, this little bonsai rock garden that I'd built many years ago mm. and I, I wanted to get in there with a leaf blower and sort of clean all the, the ash leaves off it. And I couldn't because there was just people. Like, I, I would have been blowing leaves yeah. face full of leaves in everyone that walked past. Yeah. It was just, yeah, it was almost impossible. But, um, you know, yeah, during the week on an, on normal weeks, if you mm. can get up into those places or take a day off, it's a much better experience. And it spreads yeah. it out, as you say, for the local uh, yeah. businesses, businesses and things. It spreads that cash out yep. for them and helps them out a bit more too rather than, having two hectic days a week and then it's quiet for the rest of the week. It sort yeah. of spreads it out for them as well. And I think too from my, like, I mean, we our, the Botanic Garden opens at 10am so it's not, not early, but but if you can get there at that early kind of yeah. opening hour, it's just the best time to see the gardens. You know, you get the, especially this time of year when you sort of start to get the views that are opening up as the autumn foliage starts dropping and quite often, you know, we're above the, the fog line, so you're looking down in the valley above the clouds, and it's yeah, it's a pretty special time. 
It, yeah, it's the same, at, you know, at most gardens and when I worked at uh, Melbourne Zoo, it was the same, like, get there when the place opens at no, 10 o'clock or yeah. 9 o'clock or whatever. Guaranteed car park. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. And it looks fresher too, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah. always yeah. looks a bit fresher in the morning. Yeah, all the, all the horticultural <laughs> staff have just been through and cleaned the place up, so it is looking really fresh. <laughs> and there's no one else there. Yeah. It's definitely worth getting up a little bit earlier for. And I will be there early at 10 a.m. tomorrow yeah. at the Dandenong Rangers Botanic Garden. I'm yeah. taking a group of students up to the Dandenong Rangers tomorrow. So Texas Garden's the first stop off. Yep. And then we're gonna. I'm gonna trying to you know get a love of natives really brainwashed into my students. Yep. So we're gonna finish up at Karanga Native Nursery yeah, for the nice. day. <laughs> yep. So we have yeah. a good balance. Cool yeah, yeah. climate, natural rhododendron collection. Dandenong Rangers Botanic Garden, another one in, in between, and then finish it off with Australian natives. Yeah. The whole spectrum. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be like, just, I think I'll probably overwhelm them all with the different <laughs> sorts of plants that they're going to see. It's going to be a big day. I'm, I'm tired already just thinking about <laughs> it. <laughs> it's going to be a really big day. But I used to love, um, when I was studying, going on field trips and excursions, yeah. you just learn so much and see so much. Getting well, out of the like classroom. I was saying with the foraging earlier, is you can sit in the classroom and listen to someone talk, or you can read a book, which are all great things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, going out and doing something where you're there and you're actually talking to someone is is uh, is a, the best way to learn something. I think is yep. yeah yeah. Especially if they're passionate about it too. I mean, obviously, if they're a bore or <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. not so good. But, yeah. but if someone's passionate about their subject, it's it's uh, it's a really good experience generally. Yeah, and I have a, I have a big love for um, you know public open gardens. And Tex, you and I know each other from the Botanic Gardens of Australia New Zealand group. Yep. So um, I really want to introduce my students to the. We have beautiful public gardens in Melbourne. We are so lucky and so many regional botanic gardens as well. So, again, that's something else I really want to brainwash them with. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, Guys, we finally have a caller. Um, We will welcome on David from Cheltenham. David, are you there? Yes, I sure am. Just speak Uh, a little bit louder, David. You're a bit quiet. Sorry, is that better? Yes, that's better. Yeah, we can hear you. Hi, David. Hi. Uh, Look, um... I've got a question about a Fajoa tree. We've got one which is about six or seven years old now. We bought it from the nursery, and it's hardly ever fruited, although it's grown enormous. And we've had it cut back a couple of times. And we were thinking of chopping it down and putting something else in, um, because if it doesn't have flowers uh, or fruit, then there's not much point. Now, it's got a few flowers each year at the same time as our other fajoa. Um so we know it it, um, it, 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 it what does produce a few flowers anyway. Um, but this year, the flowers have just appeared, which is about two months too late. I mean, <laughs> two months later than usual, and certainly two months later than the other fajoa, which is just finishing fruiting. Um, can I, does it ring a bell to you as to what well, there might be something wrong with the tree, or uh, or could it just be climatic with that particular variety? The tree that you bought, was it a grafted variety of fajoa, or was it just a regular oh, I, potted I, version? Yeah, I, I don't. I really don't know. We bought it um, from a reputable nursery, and yeah. 
it was a it was a named variety from memory. I don't remember if it was grafted or not. Because there's sort of some whether it's there's some selections that you can buy that are grown that particular selection is grown because it has or produces really good fruit on it, um, and they're often a little bit more expensive in a nursery. Well, or, that, that's what well that's mm. what we we asked for. Yeah. We asked for one that would fruit well, and in particular the birds, uh, the, the lorikeets, uh, love them. So uh, but it's been a, a, a great disappointment, and the, the root system has now invaded the vegetable garden, which is some distance away, but the root, the root mass has travelled. Mm. So I just we were thinking of cutting it down, but we're not sure if it's not helping. Uh, if in previously it wasn't helped pollinating our other one, cross-pollinate the other one. The, but, other, th- uh, the other thing is that it can take a while for plants to start producing really good fruit on them. And sometimes that seven-year mark, I know with, you know, nectarines and peaches, mm. it can take, you know, seven years before the plant pr- starts producing good fruit. It might oh, be okay. a similar situation with the fajoa. Well, the other thing yes, is, too, if, it, if its roots are in the veggie patch, it might be getting a bit more nitrogen than it needs as well, so it's... Sort of, it's growing quite healthy. Oh well, it's 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 putting on far more leaf growth. It's just gone berserk. Yeah. yeah uh, our, our other our other for is sixty years old, and um, it's it's been cut down once and come again, and it's going like a tram. But it gets fruit, not so many leaves. But this one, you're right. I, I it's been concerning me a little bit that it's putting on far too much leaf by virtue of. Um, it gets washing machine water, and it also it gets all the compost in the in the vegetable garden. Mm. Yeah, so it might be uh, something else that might be affecting it is is more nitrogen than it needs, and uh, more, so more it's putting all its energy that. into growing leaves rather yeah. than yeah, yeah, producing flowers and fruit. I, I understand that, but I was wondering why it would suddenly this year flower a couple of months later than it has been. Previously, we had a really, you know, sort of mild summer, so the temp it might um, yes, fajoas might need some that temperature activation. I understand that, but the other fajoa, which is on the other side of the block, fruit flowered and fruited the same as usual. Hmm. So that's why I wondered if it might was. I just thought, well, maybe it is um, something is about to happen. Well, it might be. It might be coming good too. Maybe it'll flower properly next year and get fruit on it. Yeah. It'd, it'd certainly be worth giving it a, another season, I reckon, maybe after yeah, well, a, a prune. And, it, um, might, it might have heard you yeah. talking about chopping it down. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the old gardener's got a joke about leaning the axe up against it. Oh, yes, that's right. No, we only started talking about chopping down yesterday. Look, it's a pleasure to have around because uh, they're a beautiful-looking tree. Beautiful but it does tree. shade. It does throw the afternoon shade over the vegetable garden, and so... Um, it's been a, a little bit of a nuisance, but um, but you're right. It's um, perhaps we've been a little bit hasty with it. You give it, it another, give it another season and a bit of a haircut, and maybe yeah. dig a trench between it and the veggie patch. Hmm. Well, yes, um, trying to avoid our irrigation system. Oh well. yes, I, yeah, I, no it, it did occur to me that I I could just sink some steel blades or something down around that, that line, uh, around the vegetable garden, which is demarcated with uh, brick paths and things. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Could, is there a cure? Could I ask you one more question? Yeah, go for it. Oh, good. Look, mm-hmm. we've, in, our, in another vegetable 
patch that we had because we used to be fanatics um, and we got a fairly big block in Cheltenham. We we had a vegetable garden which got um, got absolutely uh, um, um, uh, almost unusable because of onion weed. And um, I had spoken to Stephen Ryan about this a few years ago and, and um, his advice was just to keep it sort of chopped off and eventually the bulbs will, uh, will pack it in. Well, that probably hasn't happened, but it, uh, that hasn't happened, but I think it's also because we do dig it uh, we do dig the veggie garden to um, to plant. Um, we've t- decided to turn that into a lawn, and, and um, the, the fellow was getting ready to put turf down, and we realised that we had this onion weed infestation, and he, here we dug soil out until he got rid of it, but he didn't go down deep mm. enough. And, um, and because of the light, uh, anyway, basically, the, all the bulbs are still down there. And um, we're wondering, we asked the, the turf people whether um, it was affected, and of course they said yes, and so we cancelled the turf. Um, and then it occurred to us that if we could um, dig it all over and get most of it out, we still put the turf down. Could you tell me whether, if we're laying buffalo turf, and once it gets really going, even if some of the, the onion weed comes up, would regular mowing eventually choke off those bulbs and leave us with good turf, or would it be the other way around? I, th- I think the, the lawnmower is probably not going to get down low enough to mm. to stop the bulb from photosynthesising, which is what you need to yeah. do to to, mm. to yeah, choke it out. Words, it will, even though it has, might have half an inch or, or an inch of yeah. light getting to it. Alternatively, though, you could have a wild meadow and just embrace the fact that you've got Allium triquetum and you can't get rid of it and plant other species in there and have a nice pretty flowering meadow <laughs> rather than a lawn. And the bees will probably be much happier for that as well. The problem with that is that then the, flower, the, the, the heads of the, um, the onion weed are going to spread the stuff to our orchard area um, and, um, from, you know, and also to our front garden, which is all native and doesn't have onion weed in it. Yeah, no, you don't, you don't want it spreading. That's for sure. You could you could mow over it yeah. just before it just before it flowers, yeah. or um, just before it finishes flowering. Just a crazy yeah. idea. Of course, it increases the frequency you've got to mow them because onion onion wheat grows at the rate of knots. I mean, you know, yeah. it's it's, uh, it's six inches high before you look at it. Uh, it's a bit of a tricky one. Onion weed onion weed is a total pain in the neck. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. If you've got a clean slate, though, and you, you want to start from scratch, the, probably the best thing to do is black plastic, but, again, it's going to take a couple of years. Mm. Like you just put <laughs> something that smothers the whole ground down for a couple of years. Or, and or even, you know, even cardboard and then, you know, yeah. top it with some lawn um, uh, topsoil, some sandy loam topsoil, and then lay your turf on top of that. You need and, to smother it, and though. That, yeah. yeah, and hopefully that cardboard layer yeah, yep. and then the sandy loam layer, we know, will smother it off. It cert- certainly do a big part. Yeah. In, even if you get one or two bulbs that come up through a crack in the cardboard or something, but you've, you've only be got able one or two bulbs to deal with. That's them. manageable. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, maybe yeah. a decomposable layer of some sort that they can't penetrate through that yeah. eventually breaks down. Yes. All right, that's a good idea. Thanks very much. All right. All the best, David. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Bye. Thanks, I'll need the luck. Bye. <laughs> Oh, onion weed is a tricky one. It's, it's worse when there's other stuff in the ground there that you want to keep. Mm. It's, mm. it's like if, if it's just onion weed and, there's, and 
So if you've got a, a, an area that's got onion weed and ivy on it, you, you'll whip a snip it and then throw something heavy down for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when there's other little treasures in there that you want to keep, it's, it gets a, a, yeah. a little bit trickier. And you only need to leave one and it yeah. turn, turns into lots Yeah, quickly. that's right. It's very persistent and mm. it's, a, it's a smell that we're very... Uh, Familiar with up in the Dandenongs of when mm. mowing, <laughs> mowing the lawns, you get the smell yeah. of alium across. Well, they are edible too. Yeah, so well, that's the other thing I was going to say is it's almost what part of it is edible? All of, all of it. All of it. Really? Yeah. yeah. Most I think I don't think there's any toxic species of allium. I think okay. all the alliums. I mean, you wouldn't want to eat a uh, thirty dollar allium shiberti. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, th- I think there's. I think you can eat them all. Oh, um, right. And I think all parts of the onions are edible too. I think yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's one thing you could do is turn it into a food source. I don't think <laughs> yeah. it tastes very good. I, like, I don't think it's particularly... Uh, I think it's just a mild sort of chivey sort of yeah, flavour. Yeah, okay. That's my understanding. I, mm. And I must admit, I haven't ever tried it, but I always think I've been told sort of a leek kind of, yeah, chive yeah. kind of yep. flavour, which is what you would expect. So I, I also have a, a memory of somebody talking about using chickens to forage onion. So, so the onion well, even onion. just them scratching around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then the eggs actually take on the onion oh, Okay. Well, there you go. Interesting. <laughs> but having chooks would be a good way of, like, that constantly controlling mm. it to you know, deplete the energy from the bowl. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're constantly... Yeah. As I say, even if they don't eat it, they're going to scratch the top off mm. it. Yeah. Because that's, what, you know, that's sort of one way to control oxalis mm. as well, is by just constantly cutting yeah. it back and ripping it out, yeah. and you deplete the bulb of the energy. Yeah. Just persistence. Yep. It, yeah. And, and it's yeah. got the worst of the weed combinations where not only does the bulb divide amazingly quickly yeah. and into small little pips, it also sets seed really quickly mm. and everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And when you've got that perfect um, storm, as say there's a couple of species of oxalis that do that as well, they're the worst of the weeds, I reckon, the ones that divide uh, yeah. underneath the ground yeah. as quickly as they can spread seeds. Divide and, and conquer. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> those bulbs, I remember um, digging up an oxalis one time, very, very carefully in a loose veggie garden, mm. and the what was like a taproot that went down to where the bulbs were. It was about 25, 20 centimetres in yeah. length. Yeah. And then you hit the bulb system. Yeah. So... That's that's a lot of soil to dig out if you want to if it's all over your garden and you need to and you, yeah. you want well, to dig the, it out. The bul- I mean, alliums are white at least. The bulbs are a bit easier to see unless yeah. you've got quartz in your soil. But um, but the problem with some of the weedy oxalis is that the tunics are like brown and mm. just sort of mix into the soil, look like little bits of stone or iron stone or something in the soil. So yeah. um, uh, some of the species oxalis that aren't weeds have the most beautiful root structures and bulbs. So I remember digging up some of the Oxalis herder, which is not one of the weedy ones. Yeah. It, it does well, but it's not a weed. And the bulbs were spaced around that taproot that you're talking about like a uh, double helix. So you had a really? bulb, every little section you had a bulb that was opposite. Oh, wow. as it were, And it spiralled down into the ground about uh, two or three inches or so into the pot. Um, they have the most... A, a huge variety and the most amazing looking bulb structures and mm-hmm. root, root structures underneath the ground um, and leaves and flowers too, of course. Um, but, yeah, the weedy ones, again, that seed and multiply, they're just a nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. they are a nightmare. Um, oh, Mem has called in again and would like to know a foolproof way of controlling her possums. 
I don't think there's a foolproof way of controlling possum. Yeah. I'm sorry. There's a lot of, you know, you could try chili and garlic sprays. Um, there's uh, pos off. Pos off, yeah, which is, uh, yeah, I think unless you can actually cage the whole plant, which isn't a great look either, yeah. it's, it's difficult because they're, they're persistent and they do it at night. And so. they're territorial too, they're territorial, so if, yeah. that, if that's in its territory, then it can be hard. Um, I've embraced the possums at home. I just yeah. so come to the conclusion that I'll just there's enough stuff now where they yeah. can eat what That's they the want. That's the other thing. So provide food, provide yeah. more food for it to distract it away from the wisteria as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whether you put out a piece of you know it's some easy. apples or something. Well, I've I've got three and a half acres too, so it's a bit easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> you if you've got three space. trees in your backyard, yeah. um, and the ringtail or brushtail possum decides that it's going to eat your plant, then it's a it's a bit tougher. But it's also easy to protect if you've only got one or two plants to, mm. to think about as well. Um, but I would say if you if you've got a decent sized garden, um, just plan that, you know. The possum is going to destroy something yeah. <laughs> occasionally, or yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's I, a, I'd sort of put in maybe something else that's nice and juicy and green that might attract the possums away from yeah, yep. the um, wisteria. A sacrificial yeah. plant. Of that's sorts. right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's going to be difficult with a standard wisteria too, because obviously if it's a big, big, a big tree and you can sort of that's fairly clear, big specimen tree, you can put a possum guard yeah. around it, and that that can help mm. if they can't get up the tree. But it's mm. but some. But, Standard wisteria, it's probably going to be able to access whether you've, yeah, unless you can put something completely. It's like a big it. landing pad almost. If yeah. it's got a spot <laughs> yeah. higher and it's got this big umbrella shaped yeah. landing and pad, and they do jump. jump. Yeah, they do. Yeah. 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 Well, there's a few options there for you, Mem. So good luck. Uh, we did have another caller. Uh, let us know, Lewis. Thank you to stimulate for gels into fruiting. Cut one major branch off per season. So that might be mm. worth um, David giving a go. If anyone has any questions, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Chloe Foster, and I have Greg Boldiston and Tex Moon in the studio with me this morning. If you have any questions, give us a call on 9419 And I believe the tickets for Bollebeck are still up for grabs. Oh, no, they're not up for grabs. They're gone. Congratulations to the person that got them. <laughs> Bollebeck is open. If anyone is interested in going on a day trip next weekend, Bollebeck, uh, which is the name of a historic heritage property up in the Macedon Ranges, is open next weekend through the Open Gardens Victoria Scheme. So it's the 24th and 25th of April. Um, there's beautiful walled uh, rose gardens up there, um, poplar, crabapple trees, um, herbaceous borders, lilac hedges, ferneries, all the sort of old historic stuff you would expect to see. Yeah, it's a beautiful old farmhouse. Yeah. Um, and I did look, and I couldn't find any evidence that Post Office Farm were at, at there, but there is plants for sale, plants and books for sale at, yep. the, at the place. So it could be Post Office Farm, but I'm not sure. <laughs> but there's definitely... People can go little, and find yeah, out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, if anyone's looking for something else to do today, there is the Yarra Valley Plant Fair that is on. Um, it's sort of the f- one of the first plant shows we've been able to have since yeah. COVID it's hit us. Wild, isn't it? Yeah, so all, there's heaps of uh, stalls up there, uh, lots of different growers, and there's some talks and workshops going on today. Stephen Ryan is emceeing the day. Uh, Virginia will be up there, I believe. Virginia Haywood, and there's a few a few others 
um, and lots of local, smaller local nurseries from around Melbourne that we should support as well that probably did it tough last year. So Yarra Valley Plant Fair, Quail Road, Wandon, it is on at, and I think it's about $15 or 12, 12 to $15 entry. So if you're looking for something to do today, um, go up to the Yarra Valley Plant Fair in Wandon. We do have another caller, so we will welcome on Anne from Northcote. Are you there, Anne? I am. Thank you, Chloe. Good morning. Good morning. What's your question? Um, With the viability of oxalis and onion wheat, any clues on how long, is it two, three years before, you know, when you suffocate, Mm. how long they still stay viable or is it conditional on the soil and everything else, I guess? Depends how advanced the infestation is, but I'd be looking at a few years yeah. to, until got you start two seeing results. Problems too, because you've got the the bulb stock will die out in a year or two. Um, so a big uh, allium bulb or a big oxalis bulb, even if it can't get any leaves out in one season, there's probably still enough energy in one of some of the bigger, healthier ones mm. for it to survive to the yeah. second season. So it's at least two to three years just to kill the living bulbs out. And then the seed viability is probably a little bit longer than that. Um, so as Chloe says, it depends on how long the infestation's been there. If it's only been there for a, f- for a few years, the seed bank might be... Uh, or, or if it's mowed or whippersnipped regularly, the seed bank might be minimal. So yeah. the smothering of the bulbs might do it. But, um, yeah, if, if it's been seeding down freely for, you know, f- five or ten years... I'm not sure that allium seeds usually have a pretty long viability to them, uh, unfortunately for that for that one. Um, but yeah, it's it's probably a case of you smother it for two or three years, then see what comes up, um, and you might be able to deal with the seedlings uh, a little bit easier because they won't have the energy stored in them. And so the can, seedlings often take a year or two before they start producing the bulb. Is that correct? Oh, they, they should. Produce a bulb by the end of the first growing. Okay. So once, uh, but it's easy to pull out a younger bulb. Yeah, or yeah. it's easy to smother them too because yeah. you've got nothing in reserve. Yeah. So, yeah. so as I say, you put the plastic down, maybe for two years, then pull it off, see if any seeds come up, mm. and as soon as they come up, then you smother them again. Mm. Um, and that that would be that'd only take one year. But of course, then if you disturb the soil, you might shoot some more seeds up to closer to the surface that yeah. are going to germinate too. Yeah. That's what makes yeah. them so tricky and a bit horrid. Yeah. Thank you. I've actually got uh, another two little ones. Hopefully you've got time. Yeah, go for it. At this time of the year, there's these uh, little um, fluffy stars that keep coming into my garden. They fly in, and I don't know what they produce, but I pick them up and I put them, you know, I get rid of them as soon as I can find them. Now, you know what I mean? They're just little balls of fluff, but they've got a seed um, centre, and they f- they come on the wind. What do they... Are they they're not dandelions. Is, is it, is it they... like cotton, or is it more like a dandelion-shaped... Uh... Uh, it's a central uh, little wheel, with, but a oh, total okay. 360 wheel, and um, white fluffy edges that fly in the wind, with seed, I think, more or less seeds in the middle. Or a seed, or don't know. Look, I'm sure you've seen millions of them. I do every autumn. They just keep coming. But I don't know where they come from. I mean, I live near, I'm on a road and I live near the park, so they just come from everywhere. And not quite sure, I can't get a a visual of what you're 
describing to us, if you can take a photo of it and you can email it to gardening at 3cr.org.au, we might be able to have a look at it. Lovely. An idea it that way. Yeah. Or on the Facebook page too. Or you could share it on our Facebook page or tag us in social media if you've got that on Instagram or something. Thank you. All right, I'll have a go at that. But the third thing I wanted to ask is um, uh, Stephen sold me a beautiful Chinese quince about four years ago and it's producing great fruit now. So I have tried it and it's quite tart. It's a little it's, it's a little bit different to the normal quince and I just wondered if um, there's any recipes that I can't find online that are suitable for that variety because of the tartness, it's... You don't just do it the way you do a normal quince, I don't think. Yeah, so that's a pseudo Was it was the one you got from Stephen? One from Stephen, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I'm assuming they're edible, but um, I, I thought oh, they were, they're more of an ornamental plant uh, generally. I know, the quince, the quince is really massive size. Like, yeah, um, yeah, no, the one, I get some fruit off my one at home, and as you say, they're massive big fruit. Um, yeah. Just need to I, add a ton of sugar to it. Yeah, yeah. and I don't grow no, the, I don't to pick the fruit. I don't think that's the answer. I don't think the sh- I think there must be some little other chemicals that um, combat that tartness. But I will try adding more sugar. But I thought maybe a, a citrus addition or something, some clever thing. Well, the but, salt um, can tackle that too. A little bit of salt, I yeah. think, can. Ah. Can tackle but a bit thinking. of tartness. So the, uh, a pinch of salt with a heap of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah, and there, mu- like there, uh, there must be somebody That's who, would, what I'm who would have a who would have a recipe. I know that they're around quite a bit. So. Yeah. Uh, and oh, I have good. heard of people making jam, jam from the Chinese quince. So. If, if anyone yeah. knows or wants to email gardening at 3cr.org.au, then send us Thank in a recipe you. and we can put it out on our Lovely. social media they've or got, something. They've got beautiful bark and flowers too. Yeah. So they're amazing-looking trees. So yeah, even if you tree. find up not having something that's palatable, at least you've got something nice to look at. Yeah. Oh, they're very across the all seasons beautiful. So thanks very much for your time. All right. Thank you, sure. you Anne. All the best. Um, everyone's woken up and they're calling they're in. <laughs> so let's go to um, Jackie. Uh, Jackie, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, how are you going? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I just uh, want to ask a question about frackness. Um, I know I was saying that probably right, a golden ash. Yep. yep. Um, all my neighbours are in glory, glorious, you know, um, autumn colour. But mine drops its leaves early. It, it doesn't hold on to its leaves for very long. Does yeah, it colour up much? It doesn't seem to go much through the, you know, the lovely autumn colour. It just seems to suddenly drop them all. And it's mm. been doing this for years. It's not a young tree. It's probably about eight years old. You might, ju- you might have a slightly different cultivar to what some of your neighbours have. There's a lot of different types oh. of fraxinus out there. Oh. They're usually one of the first things to drop their leaves too. I know at Mount Macedon this year, a Mm. lot of the ashes have just dropped their foliage without too much colour, just because we haven't had the the sort of coldish weather to colour them up a little bit. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, the the golden ash usually, even if it doesn't hang on to its leaves very long, they usually at least colour up before they drop their leaves. Yeah. But uh, it might be just the season this year. If If it's just a problem this year, it might be just... The, the fact that we haven't had the cold snap to colour them up uh, as much as they usually would. Yeah, it's been doing it for years. 
Oh, okay. okay. It, yeah, I'm, the only thing I can think of is that maybe your neighbours have a slightly different variety to what you have. Oh, I'll go check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go, go and uh, suss uh, them out. <laughs> apologies because I missed the first half an hour on it, but a uh, question for Greg. Are you going to be doing your funky tours? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, there's, there's a, a website, the group I'm doing them with this year is uh, My Community. So the, the website is myco.org.au and all the bookings through that this year. So, so they've, um, uh, they're organising. I'm not very good at organising. I can turn up at Sanitarium Lake or something and, and talk about fungi for two or three hours, but um, <laughs> as far as organising things and taking money off people, I'm not so keen on. <laughs> um, and a lot of the walks we're doing this year are... are like fundraiser ones as well, so I'm actually not getting any money out of them at all. It's just thank uh, you for doing that. It, it's uh-huh. just to to yeah raise some money for the mycology lab that's doing it for me, and also a few other charities and things as well. So, um, but I'd much prefer to do that than actually have to organise me and other people because <laughs> um, it's not my forte. So that's the myco.org.au. Thank you. All right, thanks, thanks. Jackie. All the best. And we have uh, Graham from Doncaster. Is this uh, Graham, who is one of our panellists? Yes, that, that's right. Graham. Uh, hi, Graham. How are you going? <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty good, thank you. Now, just with regard to the uh, the uh, uh, feed jar, yes. uh, we grew in our farm. We had five, five trees, some seeds of seedlings that we grew, and one, one was magnificent. You know, it came out with a lovely big fruit, bigger than in head, hen's egg size, and it was a great, 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 great one to eat. The other, the other five were bit, so variable, mm. and uh, one was just w- worth nothing. It had little, tiny little buddy fruits, that, and these are over probably six, ten to ten, ten year periods, so they were well trialled. And I just came to the conclusion that they're very variable from seed. And uh, yeah. I should have t- t- taken that note because in my r- r- relatively newer garden, in my home garden, I planted a, a feed jar of seedling. I should have <laughs> tried to source a, a, a grafted, grafted one. But again, it came up in small things, not much bigger than marble sort of thing for, for fruit on the thing. And I tried over a few years to give it everything that I thought was possible, you know, the better, the better fertiliser, more water through the, the growing season, and to, to no avail. They were just miserable little, little fruits. <laughs> so I come to the conclusion they're very variable from seed. And actually what I did last uh, uh, in springtime, I've chopped it right down. It's grown up as they do, many, many, many water shoots coming up. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, and just uh, about a month ago, I've, I've budded all those from the original tree that's still in the farm that we, you know, was the good, was the good one. But uh, I think for that person that's having trouble with it, you know, it's a, if unless you know about your, your um, propagation by grafting and budding, it, uh, it, it's probably to, best to take it out and to source a grafted one, like yeah. people suggested. You know, you, from a grafted one, you're sure what you get mm. from these very variable things that are otherwise they're not real. The other thing I was going to mention I was up at Hawkesbury Agricultural College, and on that, uh, they, they had a few. Uh, trees 
around. And to my knowledge, there was only one Fijoa there. That was a, a good Fijoa. And I thought to myself, well, you know, some people say they, they need pollination. This was one on its own and no other Fijoa within Kui and it bore, you know, very, very, very good fruit. So just a bit of information for you there, Chloe. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for calling in, Graham. Um, I did think of you when we got the Fajoa question, so I really appreciate you calling in. Thanks so much. Catch you later. Bye. On Fajoas, just before we move on to our next caller, um, Tino and Gardening Australia did a story on growing Fajoas, cultivating them, selecting, you know, a grafted one, you know, and all that. Um, the video is on YouTube, so if someone goes in, if you, David, if you're still listening, go into a YouTube search, type in Gardening Australia for Joas. Um, Tina did a fantastic story on it a couple of years ago, so that might pop up as well. Um, but because Fajoa is, you know, a common cultivated plant as well, you can just buy the plain old seed-grown versions. Um, but the grafted ones where they've selected um, for good fruit um, cost a little bit more, but you're sort of guaranteed mm. of... Of, um, of a better fruit set from it. All right, we have another caller, and we will say good morning to Bromwyn in East Malvern. Hello. Oh, good morning, panel. Uh, look, I have a problem. I have stupidly planted um, very close together a Tangelo and a Valencia orange. They're only about four or five feet apart, and the Valencia was the first one that went in, and for years it didn't go anywhere. Um, and now they're both shot up, and the Tangelo is the better of the two. Um, they're sort of on the east side, and they uh, face north. And there's a pond nearby, and I wanted to move the Valencia if I could. Now, I'm in very sandy soil, um, and I was just wondering when the best time to move it is. It's about uh, 15 feet high now, and it's just sort of shooting. But it's never had much fruit, and I just wanted to put it on the east side in a very north-westerly facing facing, um, spot. Uh, Can you suggest anything? How old did you say it was? It's about 15 oh, feet. Oh, it's very old, but it's very <clears throat> small. <laughs> um, okay. It's just, it never took off in this soil, and that's why I just sort of left it. I intended moving it, but it, it just, it's just jammed in behind this tangelo, and I just wanted to move it, um, if possible, to get up, and uh, I just wondered when was the best time. Um, it's about 15 feet high. They're probably going to have some decent root systems on them if they've been mm. there for a long time, yeah, especially I mean, if it's struggled for a long time. So it would have taken all that time to find its feet. Um, and if you cut mm. through that big root system that it's finally reached something that it likes, uh, it might be in for a bit of a, a shock. But I'm not real... I don't think I've ever shifted a big old citrus tree before. No. And I guess the it's other thing, if it's that close to the other one, you might... But it's got a small stem. It's not as if it's a very... It's never really gone far, okay. you know, like... Mm. Mm. Well, the, so the root system would be deep, I would say, so you, you, yeah. you're better off... You mightn't have to dig far out from the mm. trunk, but you, you would want to dig quite deep, I would imagine. Okay. And also pruning the tree Prune when the you tree. dig it. How, how much would I prune off? A third to half? half. Yeah. And, and it depends <laughs> if you cut through any big roots as well. So if you, if you cut through... Yeah. If you accidentally snap or cut through a major root, you might need to take a little bit more off too to compensate for it. Okay. Um, and now while the soil is warm is probably not a bad time to do it. Okay. Um, you could sort of dig it, cut the roots and dig a trench and leave those roots to heal for a week or two and then yeah, yeah. move the plant. Yeah. 
um, and make sure that you really cultivate that soil in, in the new yeah, uh, in the new spot. And, and you know, would you feed it or wait a while? Sea yeah, sea yeah. <laughs> just just sea salt or maxicrop, one of those seaweed um, okay. concentrates, fertilisers. Um, you probably don't want to be bulking it up on on fertiliser too quickly. Let it get it, it roots, a new root system out before. Yeah, it probably needs some feed, mm. food. But yeah, the, those sort of tonicky type seaweed stuff is probably yep. the yeah. best thing for it for right. the first year. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, look, I have. Thank you very much. I have one more question. Is that possible? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, all right. I have. I wanted to prune an olive tree. Um, the olives have just come off, and it bore very few. Um, once before, I pruned this olive tree by half. Is now a good time to do it? To prune the olive? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I... They're pretty tough, aren't they? Yeah, yeah they're incredibly <laughs> tough plants. So and it's it, still, the weather's still sort of warm. Yeah. A lot of them are fruiting at the moment anyway. So a lot, most things yeah. in general you sort of you prune after flower or fruit. So yeah, yeah. you could probably give it a prune now. All right. Look, all right. thank you so much. No worries. Thanks, Bronwyn. All the best. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, we had Mim um, contributing a lot this morning. Thank you. She has t- um, sent a message in on the text line. Um, about the uh, the weed that um, one of our callers was describing before. She said oh, it's possibly thistle down. Um, it, it sounds something like yeah. one yeah, of so those seed structures. Yeah, so if just cotton everywhere, is, if you've got an aspen around, can be that. Mm. But I'm not sure if that's at this time of the year. Usually drops those, or whether it's a bit earlier or not. But um, yeah, if it's an actual structured thing, it sounds more like of a, a thistly type thing, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, um, we are we are here till nine fifteen. So if anyone has any last minute calls, our number is nine four one nine zero one double five. Text you brought in a plant this morning. I did. And we I, play show and tell. Yeah, we can. And we've obviously been doing a lot of talk about um, autumn colour, but the other obviously, well, showy thing at this time of year, an important thing is some of the autumn flowering perennials. And I've brought in a. A salvia mexicana limelight, which I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if it's made an appearance on this show before. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but I got this one from the Fernie Creek Hort Society, and I grabbed it from my own garden because I just think it's a good, well, it's a beautiful plant. It's an incredible yeah. um, colour contrast in between the, the sepals and the and the actual the flowers with the lime green sepals and then the purple flowers. But as much as anything, as a segue to that, I guess the the talking about the the autumn flowering perennials, the salvias and plectranthus and those things that extend your, your your flowering season and obviously provide nectar sources for for insects and and birds and and mm. and, and that sort of stuff. So that that was that was my plant that I brought in. Salvias are so, they're a go-to plant for me. I just love them. They're so reliable and they're so hardy. They're yeah. so tough. And the, the diversity in them too. Yeah. Incredible diversity. Incredible yeah, diversity. That, this one was, and this one, oh, in my garden, I think it's only a couple of years old. And the first mm. year, it got one flower which got uh, plucked off by a parrot very quickly. And then that was the best thing that could have happened to it because, mm. you know, then, then it just shot away and it's just complete. It's huge now and it's completely covered. And so, <laughs> so yeah, the salvage is for a sunny spot. And Plectranthus for a nice shady spot. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, a, it's a really good combination, and this time of year they really come into their own. So, yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, no, I love the lime. The lime, well, called limelight for a reason. Mm. Um, when the purple flowers drop off, you've still got a bit of a feature on the plant. Yeah. So, yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, we have another caller. So, good morning to uh, Ruth in Bentley East. How are you? Good morning, thank you, and good morning to you all. Um, I'd like to know, please, if there is a ground cover covering grevillea that will tolerate part shade, I mean part sun. Oh, part sun. Okay, so it's a little, so it's in sort of dappled, bit of dappled light. Yes, yes. Um, it does get a bit more winter sun than. And through the other part of the year, and I'm sure in um, oh, what's his name, Angus, Angus's big Australian book I saw from the library that there was um, some varieties, but I can't get hold of it just at present. So there's a couple of species of grevilleas that do well in shade. One of them is Sharicei, which is the word shires, so S H I R E S double I. So that come, you can get that in a prostrate ground cover form. Okay. Um, I yep. would recommend a trip up to Karanga for that. Um, there's mm-hmm. a couple of other ones which would probably do all right in part shade, so um, gold cover or gold fever. Um, and maybe, oh, that's the one. Yeah, 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 that one might do all right. Okay. The, ground covers is a little bit tricky. I have seen Grevillea obtusifolia growing um, underneath some trees in a shady spot before as well. You don't okay. usually get that many flowers off it, but it is a nice, um, you know, green Obfolia. cover. Yeah, and how do you spell that? O-B-T-U-S. I F O L I A obtusifolia. Okay, all right. Well, I'll have to look for those. And how do you spell plectranthus? Spell plectranthus? Yeah. P L E C T R A N T H U S. Sure, I have the R around the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. I'll look those up and see what I can do. That's right, all thank the best. No worries. Bye. Bye. All right, it is five to almost five to nine. If anyone has any last minute um, calls, give us a call on 9419 You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show, and people started to wake up. Yeah. <laughs> it always happens, everyone calls right at the end. That's okay, we're here to answer your questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's a community service. Greg, any other plants that you brought in? I have. I've got, um, I'll do the hydrangeas, I think. I've, oh, good. I brought in two Heidi's. Yep that aren't the big hybrid hydrangeas, which is still nice. Mm. Um, but these two, actually, technically these are cultivars at least, if not hybrids. Um, the first one uh, is uh, hydrangea, uh, one of the aspira hydrangeas. So it's aspira rocklon, which is a cultivar between two of the aspira species, I believe. Mm. Um, this one has uh, it's basically a small tree almost so okay. the, the one at home 
is getting up to about three metres tall right. and about three and a half, four metres across. Um, and that's a spectacular flower it, it for is. a small tree. And I, what I find with it, it once, once it got established, which probably took about five or so years, um, it doesn't need a lot of water. So I, it's, it grows underneath a, a very old fatinia hedge that I don't cut, so it's a fatinia tree, a row mm. of fatinia trees. Yep. <laughs> Um, so it's in, you know, it gets a bit of uh, morning sun between about 9 and 11 in summer. Um, it's pretty much in shade for the rest of the day. And underneath the fatinia, it's quite dry as well. Um, and most years, I don't really water it that much. Uh, but it does get these massive flowers on it in the years where we do have rain during summer. So mm. I probably should water it. But the bush itself doesn't seem to struggle at all with the lack of water. It never really looks that terribly droopy or anything. The foliage is quite a sort of soft, velvety. Um, the leaves can get up to probably about 20 centimetres long, mm. um, 10 centimetres wide, so they're quite decent uh, leaves as well. And the flowers this year are probably 30 or 40 centimetres across. Um, so they're a lace cap type species, Heidi flower. Yep. Uh, the sepals around the edge are about two or three centimetres across, and they're mainly white, but they've got a sort of pinkish purple hue through them when they're fresh, yeah. which fades to green as the flower ages. That green is lovely at the moment. Mm. Yeah, uh, and the actual fertile flowers that form up the centre disc are a beautiful iridescent purple. Um, oh, wow. And that they do. So th- this flower would have been just start. So the the, the purple uh, fertile flowers in the centre are still uh, fresh, um, but the outer edge of the lace cap's gone qu- quite green. Mm. Um, but this flower probably started opening, um, you know, around Christmas time or something like that. Yeah. So Or just in mean, sort of mid to late January at least. Yep. Anyway. A bit um, of longevity in the flowers. It does, yeah. yeah. And, and they look good even going into winter once they've greened off. Yeah. They still add something. And the only pruning I really do for it is um, they have a funny growing structure where uh, the last year's water shoot will have a- about four shoots that come out of it. And the bottom three that face down are usually the flower shoots. And then there's one shoot that comes up the top that's a foliage water shoot for the next season's. And it's just a case of taking off the old flower yeah. spikes. Yeah, so just deadheading. Just That's dead-heading. all you need to do. Yeah, yeah. And cut, but you sort of take them back. You can see the, the, the branch I've pulled off probably about 50 or 60 centimetres long. Yeah. And I usually cut them right back to that water shoot because then you'll get a much stronger plant. If you just, just take the heads off, they, you get a lot more twiggy and smaller flowers off them. So you sort of you hard prune them, but you don't cut them back really. Mm. The other hydrangea I've brought in is probably my favourite and I think the best hydrangea that you can get is the uh, Quercifolia snowflake. Uh, Quercifolia is one of my favourites too. Yeah, yeah. So, so the normal Quercifolia is lovely. Mm. This one just, it, it's, it does something all year round. It's, it's got flowers on it for most of the warmer months. Yeah. And if it's a mild winter, you'll even get flowers right through winter. Yeah. Um, the foliage is nice when it's fresh. And then at this time of the year, it goes deep burgundies and almost blacks yeah. and, and just the most colourful thing. But the foliage doesn't drop off. It just stays those colours mm, all winter. Yeah. And it sort of drops off when the new foliage comes out. So yeah. it's sort of autumn colour all winter. Mm. Um, the one off picks quite a small flower at this time of the year. It only really sets small flowers. Uh, but 
uh, so the, the, the flower on this one's about 10 or 15 centimetres long, uh, but quite often I'll get flower heads on these that are 30, 40, 50 centimetres long. So these massive, wow. massive big panicles flower of flowers, heads. they're completely chock full of these beautiful double, little double white uh, or greenish white flowers all the way along. Yeah. Um, it's just a really stunning plant that, uh, and the other thing like the, the Aspira rockland that I was just talking about, it doesn't need a lot of water. So this one I've got on the east facing side of the house. Uh, it's in full sun up until about midday, even in summer. And it doesn't burn, and I might only water it once or twice a year. Mm. And th- these are established bushes, but mm. as I say, you give it five years um, to establish itself. And as long as it's out of the hot winds and hot afternoon sun, it's really drought to- As far as a hydrangea goes, mm. it's, it's quite a drought-tolerant plant, mm. um, and it does something for a long time uh, throughout the year. So I would say, as I say, I had the... Um, that's probably one of my favourite Heidi's, and I, I used to have the Australian species collection of hydrangeas. Oh, did you? <laughs> so, so that's uh, you know after about after growing about forty different species and cultivars, that would that's probably my favourite one. Is yeah. The, is the, uh, How big do you say the snowflake gets? Um, it doesn't get much more than about a metre. Yeah. Maybe a metre and a half. It would top out, and again, you wouldn't prune it back like you would. Mm. A, a hybrid hydrangea, yeah. you would just basically deadhead it and yep. take out the long leggy stuff. They tend to sprawl rather than grow up. Mm. So if you plant the the, the straight species quirk is a little bit higher mm. and a little bit more sprawly, so it's a bit more compact than one of those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they they only tend to get up to about a metre, a metre and a half tops yeah. upwards. But yeah. they they'll tend to lean out and touch down and then sucker off and then come up and okay. grow out and, and touch down. Yeah. That's if they're left un, unchecked. Yeah. Um, so a big old quirk of folly that's been there for years and no one's really bothered with it mm. might cover a couple of square metres easily, yeah. So you said that they do well in really dry and you've got them in a drier spot. What about the other side of that, of that in, wet, in wetter spots? What are well, those? What are so... They like? The quirk folly is one of the North American Heidi species, yeah. and I just think they uh, have evolved to handle much drier conditions. So okay. the paniculatas, the quirk folias, and the arborescence, and there's a couple of others too. Yeah, um, they're all shade, generally shade plants. Yeah, that's um, yeah. But they're much they're much more uh, suitable to drier shade okay. than say the Asian species of hydrangeas. Right. Uh, which which the um, the hybrid ones uh, amongst those. So the, the, the hybrid Heides are bred from plants that would have uh, natural habitats around uh, Japan, yep. um, which gets a much higher summer rainfall than we would here. Okay. Um, so as up in the Dandenongs and Mount Macedon, you see they do quite well, even yeah. without water. If they're, if they're in a shady spot and mm. established, they seem to do quite well. Mm. Um, but if you're down on the plain somewhere where it gets really hot, even if you pour water on them. Yeah. And, and and even those ones don't like to be I, – I can't think of any Heidi's that like boggy soil. So if yeah. it's wet and, you know, if it's heavy, wet clays or something like that, I think you might struggle. Yeah. yeah. They, they they do like well-drained soil. They just don't like being dry <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, the, the American ones seem to cope a lot much better with the – once they're spots. established yeah. with the dry spots yeah. – and again, the the aspira, which is one an Asian species as well, I think um, 
once it's established, as long as it's quite protected, it's quite happy drying out. But they do so they flower so much better in those years where we get summer rainfall. Okay. Um, so on a dry year, that the Asperus uh, rocklon might only have flower heads that are 15 or 20 centimetres across. Mm. This year we've had a heap of rain mm. and it's 30 or 40 centimetres across yeah, per flower okay. head. Um, and there's more of them too. So they, yep. they do prefer water, but um, sometimes it's, you know, you just sort of let things go and have a season off or uh, yeah. let it, letting them struggle through a, a not too bad a season often strengthens their root system and helps them settle yeah. in a bit too. So like a little bit of stress mm. I think is good for the long-term health of the plant because it sort of makes them, you know, not rely on the fact that you're turning the sprinkler on every few days. Oh, and <laughs> totally, I'm watering breeds needy plants, mm. yeah. Especially shallow watering. Yeah. If, if, yeah. You're, if yep. you're shallow watering's really dangerous yep. sort of uh, for long-term for a long-term garden. Yeah, you're better off leaving it and letting those roots seek water elsewhere, which is yep. often deeper where it's cooler and moister. And Or, yeah. or watering heavy once a fortnight yes. rather than watering yeah. light every yep. second day or something. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, no, I, obviously my knowledge base lies in Australian plants, but I do love the hydrangea quercifolias. I love oak-leaved shaped plants yeah. for some reason. Um, and I, I didn't know that they were more dry tolerant than the regular hydrangeas. And because they hold their leaves, and those color, the colours on both of those leaves that you brought in this morning mm. are stunning, you well, do and get a year-round feature from them. There's, there's quite an array of them too now. The, the normal quercifolia and the snowflake are the only one to really grow at home now, but there's a yellow-leafed form, mm. um, which I don't know the names of of any of these. Yep. And same with the paniculatas. They've been uh, hybridised to a certain degree where yeah. you can get ones with, you know, flowers that are regularly 50 centimetres long and, yeah. you know, they're, they're quite quite big flowers that flush bright reds and pinks and things like that. Where could people source these plants from? I reckon Craig from Gentiana would probably have yep. a good selection of Heidi's. Yep. Um, or uh, the... Uh, well, Stephen... Uh, Stephen's the reason some. why I got into hydrangeas because uh, as... A 12-year-old, I was buying Dad Christmas presents, mm. and I thought I, we had heaps of hydrangeas in the old garden I grew up in Mount Macedon, and I thought I'll get him something different, so I bought a species Heidi, and he's like, yeah, whatever, and we whacked it in the garden, yeah. and then for the next couple of years I bought him a few, and then all of a sudden I was buying them for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went through all, all Stephen's collection mm. and bought every Heidi he had and then started searching there used to be a, a, a hydrangea nursery up in Monbok or near Monbok. It's only quite young when I used to go there, and I'm trying to think of the people's names that uh, had it. Um, and I remember going there as da- dad took mum and dad took me up there as a 15 or 16 year old, and the look of surprise on their face when I was asking them questions about species that they <laughs> wish they had yeah. and stuff like that. And uh, um, yeah, so so it was a, a, a fun little ride for for a little while, which yeah. part of which was having the the uh, the species hydrangea collection at yep. about seventeen or so. <laughs> Overachiever, Greg. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. It all went all downhill from there. I um, have seen. Um, I think you minor. Is it yeah, your or you yeah. I would say you minor. You minor. Rare plants. I've seen the snowflake on yeah. their list. Yes. Yep. Um, but there'd be another one that people. That'd be would another be able one. Any of the yeah. rare plant nurseries and yeah. anyone that 
loves their plants is worth checking out yep. anyway, just in case they have got it. But yep. any grower that has a bit anyway. of, yeah, that has a bit of diversity. Probably the uh, Yarra Valley Plant Fair would be a good place to source them. Today. Correct. Definitely, yeah. Excellent segue. <laughs> 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 You're picking up all the tricks already, Tex. <laughs> yeah. So I know your miner is at um, yeah. at the Yarra Valley Plant Fair um, this weekend, um, and I. Yeah, Stephen's there as well. He'd yeah. be able to someone to ask. Uh, and Stephen would be a good place too. to start for the Heidi's, I think. He, yeah. As I say, I'm pretty sure he still grows a lot of them. And uh, there'd be, as you say, places in, in the Dandenongs as well if you're over if you're on that side. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that, they should be uh, easy to source through... Uh, through listening to this show, there'd be lots yeah. of people in here who would be able yeah. to grow and source them. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, just before we finish up, um, a little announcement for uh, regarding an event that Encouraging Women in Horticulture is hosting. They are putting on a sustainable floristry event on the 31st of May at Crisco Flowers. And the event will be run by Rita Feldman. You'll be able to learn how to make foam-free arrangements of chrysanthemums and you'll be able to take them home too. If that sounds like something you're interested in, you can book via email and that is events at ewha.com.au. So if you want to learn uh, about floristry and how to arrange chrysanthemums, and I'm sure you'll probably learn a whole heap of other stuff about arranging other flowers on the day too, you can email events at ewha.com.au, and that's run by Encouraging Women in Horticulture. Now, Greg, just before we finish up today, because it is we've only got a few minutes left, you brought in a little stack of books this morning. I did. I, I wasn't sure how much time. I always bring in more than than I need. But Thank the, you the, for that. The, the, the reason <laughs> for the books and the little torches and the little tiny mirror that I've got there, mm. they're all funky ones. So mm-hmm. I, I was going to talk a, uh, a little bit about if uh, you wanted to identify fungi, what things to look for, um, and what resources that you can use to try and figure out what something is. If it's growing in your garden or you're out in the forest looking mm. and you find something you want to try and get a name to. Yep. Um, so as far as the books go, as with most things, you're better off, uh, rather than relying on one source of information, get as much as you can. Yeah. Um, so there's probably uh, the two main books I would uh, get as far as fungi goes are the Australian Field Guide to Australian Fungi by Bruce Fuhrer, yep. um, and A Field Guide to Tasmanian Fungi by Genevieve Gates and David Rutowski. Um, they're, especially if you're in a cool climate, rainforesty type situations like the Dandenongs and the southern slopes of Mount Macedon, they're probably the best two books, reference books to get. Yep. Um, and obviously there's online resources too, like iNaturalist and uh, Atlas of Living Australia, which are really good resources for identifying fungi. Yep. And funnily enough, Facebook groups, there's, there's some really good uh, Facebook groups that have amateur and professional mycologists on mm. them that are happy to share their knowledge yep. uh, to help you identify things. Um, with the Facebook groups, though, I would... Uh, hazard ha- caution. Hazard caution. Certainly, if you're thinking about eating something, I, I wouldn't go off mm. someone yeah. telling you you can on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but if you watch those groups like Victorian Fungi or Tasmanian Fungi groups mm-hmm. uh, on Facebook, you, you'll see people regularly commenting on things. Mm. And generally the people that are regularly commenting on things and no one's challenging that their IDs, yeah. they're probably 
a trustworthy source, but it's a slow thing. It's not something you get on there, you look for five minutes and you've got yeah. an answer. It's something you need to spend time to get good at identifying the fungi and finding yeah. out which resources are trust uh, uh, you can trust and which ones <coughs> you probably shouldn't or mm. just take as a suggestion rather than an answer yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and as I say, there's online resources as well, but if you've got a couple of good books, you've got access to the professional and amateur mycologists on these Facebook groups yeah. and you've also got Google image search and uh, and you'll find out trust, trusted resources on the internet that yeah. you can use as well. Yeah. And as a combination of those things and you going out and looking at the details on the fungi that you want to identify, you, you generally can get a pretty, pretty good answers yeah. for, for most yeah. uh, things. And good photos are really helpful too if you can Very take helpful. some good photos with your phone. Speaking of photos, I will get you to take a photo of those books you brought in and we'll put it up on the okay. um, Instagram and Facebook page so that people can go and yep. um, see those so they know what to look for and they can find the titles of them again. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Tex, Botanic Gardens Open Day. Yes. I Do you want to give us a rundown? I, I was going to give a, please, a plug. So, please. So the the last Sunday in May every year is the international. Oh, sorry, the National Botanic Gardens Day, um, which is just a, a celebration of all things botanic gardens, and and we encourage everyone obviously to get out and visit your your local or, or regional botanic garden. Um, and in the lead up to it, so we, this was something that started last year, and this is all done through the. Chloe, you mentioned before the Botanic Gardens Australia New Zealand BGANS network. Mm. Um, we, well, because it was COVID times and nobody could actually visit a lot of the Botanic <laughs> Gardens, they started a, uh, a plant challenge. So, so this has been done again in the lead up to uh, to Botanic Gardens Day, and the idea is that everyone you go out, take a short video of yourself with you talking about your favourite plant in your garden or, or wherever. And then post it online, post so post it on social media and, and, and your tag, so hashtag power of plants or plant challenge or botanic gardens day 2021 begins. So yeah, so that's, that was brilliant last year. It got, got a lot of people interested and, and it was great seeing all the, all the videos going across. It was across really his, fun. Across your social media yeah. stream. Um, so. So yeah, it's something that, that they're running with again this year, and right. and and it's a great way to celebrate plants. And yeah, the theme this year is is um, the power of plants. So and it's all about celebrating plants and their vital role in our well-being, weather and climate stabilization, providing food and habitat, research and medicine. So there's that, and then actually on the day there'll be a um, we did this last year as well. So there'll be a live stream panel discussion. Cool. And date of that again is? Is the 30th of May, 30th Sunday of May. 30th of May. All right. Well, thank you to both of you for coming in this morning, bright and early. Thank you to Tex and Greg. Thank you to Emma and Susie who have done the phones. And thank you to everyone off air that helps run the show, um, particularly Doug and Liz who do our socials and, and um, keep an eye on our emails. So thank you everyone for joining us and we will hear you again next Sunday morning at 7.30. See you later. Thanks.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.